Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. How do we take the message of limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise to a broader set of folks than you would typically see at some conservative gathering? Why are Clarence Thomas and Condi Rice, Ian Rowe, and Candace Owens exceptions instead of being seen as normal? I've long been fascinated by exploring this question, less because of the political implications, and more because it begs a further question. If these small-l libertarian and conservative ideas don't resonate with the black community, are the principles truly as inclusive as we like to believe? Well, I continue to believe that, in fact, the ideas are inclusive, that when we say all men are created equal, we really mean it. What we have, more acutely, is a messaging problem, coupled with a failure to show up. But let's test all these assumptions with our guests today. I am happy to be talking with three terrific black conservative leaders, each heading up groups doing important work to be present in the black community and bridge the gaps that exist between the stereotypical pro-liberty community and the more expansive idea of what it could be. We're going to hear from Star Parker about the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, from Kendall Qualls about his Take Charge Foundation, and we'll wrap up with Robert Woodson, founder of the Woodson Center. If, like me, you believe that race shouldn't be the predictor of where folks fall in the ideological spectrum, you are going to enjoy these conversations. So let's jump in and maybe have some of our assumptions challenged along the way. Our first guest today may be familiar to many people listening. Star Parker has been a leading voice for equality of opportunity and against dependency culture in our urban communities for more than 25 years. Star was in and out of welfare herself, but came to realize the failings and the trappings of that system, powered by a deep and abiding Christian faith and a dogged willingness to speak unpopular truths. Star has grown her organization, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, or CURE as it's more commonly known, into an important vehicle for fighting poverty and restoring dignity in black communities. So Star, so glad you're here. Uh, you found Cure, found a CURE way back in 1995. Thinking back to then, what was your goal? How did you define the mission? Well, I define the mission the same way it is today, that we fight poverty and restore dignity through messages of faith and freedom and personal responsibility. And after, as you mentioned, firsthand experience in the grip of welfare, learning how to live off of the rules, don't work, don't save, don't get married, I found myself very lost in criminal activity, drug activity, and sexual activity that then led me to... <laughs> welfare and dependency. And then after Christian conversion, changing my life, get into the place where after the 1992 Los Angeles riots, the national press picked up my story because it was different from my then sitting Congresswoman, Maxine Waters, who was 
pretending that the reason that L.A. went down under Rodney King, some of the same things that we're dealing with today um, in policing, uh, that narrative from the left has always consistently been that the problem is somebody else's fault and it's about race and racism. And my message was different, that we need responsible people living wholesome lives so that we can make communities work. As a result of that national pickup, I was invited to help the GOP get welfare reform done on a national level. So I became one of the chief consultants. We got it passed after two times putting it on Bill Clinton's desk, but it's stirring within me during that time. We're talking now 93, 94, 95, 96, when he finally signed it, was once we tell these women what not to do, who's showing them what to do? And that's why I started Cure, to say we need the community involved. We need to go around people like their representatives, all of the Congressional Black Caucus, because they're on the hard left. What should we be sending messaging so that the community, including their churches, can be involved? So I started a a summit. I did, I did a summit, Life After Welfare, What You Gonna Do Now? And that summit, I thought 40 people were going to show up, 40 pastors. I invited all of them in LA, 400 showed up. And that's when I knew that it's not that they're not engaged or don't want to know what to do. They just don't know what to do. And therefore, I started a policy institute, Cure Policy, uh, we're called now the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, so that we can focus on market-based solutions to fight poverty in four different areas, in healthcare, in education, in housing, and in economic stability uh, in these communities. And that's where we started, and that's where we are today. So the mission hasn't changed, but you know, in these 25 years, I mean, you started in that period of welfare reform. Since then, we've had our first black president. And yet now we're, it almost feels like we've taken the step back. There's all these racial arguments. So has it become harder to push this message of dignity and anti-dependence in this current climate? Or, or am I being too pessimistic? Actually, if you read the news, you could become very pessimistic in where we are today. But what it's done for Cure is it opened up a window that we've known was always there, that a third of African Americans in this country do not agree with the left. They say that they're church-going, they're evangelical Christians, and so we needed to just educate them. And because of the racial tensions, especially post uh, George Floyd, many are asking questions. Those deep believers that are saying, well, something has gone wrong, but just didn't know what and how to fix it. So it's actually helped us. We just finished our policy summit that we do annually here in Washington, D.C., to where we invite clergy from our broken communities from all over the country into D.C. Uh, and they come, they go back full of information on how to revitalize their communities. So while it looks really dark out there. And we, yes, as a nation are just frustrated that 50 years after the Civil Rights Act was signed into law was still at the same place when it comes from the narrative of the left. There is progress being made. All right. Well, that's that's encouraging to hear. <laughs> well, let's dive into some of the kind of nitty gritty of what you do. I know back in May, Cure released a, a big compendium of a lot of smart scholarship looking at the current racial debates and the divides called the state of black America, progress, pitfalls and the promise of the republic. What's the big takeaway from that research? Well, the big takeaway is that there are two sides to the black story in America. And you can look at this as a glass half full or half empty. The narrative of the left, the Urban League has put out a state of black America report every single year and is still singing the same song of the 60s. And we as a society have moved a lot further than that. One, for instance, is they keep saying that the country's stacked against young black men and we keep imprisoning them. Well, if you look at the real data, young black men and how many are in prison, uh, there are more young black men in college than there 
there are in prison. But we do have to change the title of that particular tome because the Urban League now has sent us legal letters to cease and desist using the name State of Black America because they <laughs> trademarked it. So now we're going to be the State of Black Progress. But it is an annual tome so that we can have these discussions. But for the first time in the history of the country, we're going to have them from the from the right. We're going to have them from an organization of Black conservative thought. And we believe that this first one needed to be on the bigger topic of race. The next one will be on the policy because that's where we have to go. When you start thinking about what has broken down, it's, it's underappreciated how many African-Americans have already finished school that are in college, that their lives are working really healthy. But what we keep knowing as a society and the drain on us economically is that little pocket of those who have not realize their destiny or their purpose. And so we keep focusing on uh, the whole of black community and CURE wants us to focus only on the policies that have built out a welfare state to where government is in charge of everything in our most broken zip codes. Thank God Trump identified those zip codes and we started focusing under the leadership of Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott on the Opportunity Zone Initiative. But that's where we wanna go next is to start talking about removing the barriers so that people can live free in whatever uh, situations that they they were born into. Which barrier is the most important to pull down? Like if you had to pick one. I think the one barrier, if you're talking politically, it's why is HUD involved in housing? I think that when you start talking about a free country, you shouldn't have an entity that decides winners and losers and who should live in what zip codes. We want barriers removed so that people can live free, which would then correct all of our education problems, some of our racial problems, and many of our economic concerns, uh, and as well as healthcare. Uh, when you lock people in certain zip codes and nothing in those zip codes work, then it spills out to the bigger society. But if you're talking about just in general population, what is the biggest barrier? I think one of the the biggest barrier, especially from the right, is this non-belief that people have the capacity to self-govern. This gets back down to our founding principles, which will not work if we don't believe that everybody has the capacity to self-govern, to bring something to the table, to be responsible with the choices that they make and build a, maybe not rich life, but a comfortable life. And once we as a society believe that everybody can self-govern, then we will remove all of these governmental barriers that have come out since the war on poverty so that people can start over and live the life and play the hand that they were dealt. That's great. Yeah, one of the uh, commentators I follow in kind of the fi personal finance world talks about the rich life a lot. And I think that is actually a good phrase because rich life can mean something very different for me than it can mean for you. And reminding the black community, reminding every community that they have the freedom in this country to pursue that and they don't have to get knocked off their off their goals. You know, the first business uh, merger, if you will, in the, in the history of the country, in the history of the markets, was done by an African-American um, entrepreneur named Reggie Lewis. Uh, Reggie Lewis was the first buyout we ever saw when he merged Beatrice Foods and McCall. Uh, it, he wrote a book before he went into eternity called Why Should Only White Guys Have All the Fun? Uh, <laughs> and yet his message is not as received in Black America as we want because they bought for the last 40 years this idea of collectivism, us against them. Uh, but once we start removing barriers, I think that black people will find out that living free is good. It's hard, but it's good. And then over time, as we see with our young people, they want to live free. They don't want to be trapped in government uh, when it comes to providing their jobs. 65% of the black middle class works for government. This is not a good idea for a future. It might bring you a lot of income, but it's certainly not net worth. And that younger generation is looking more for net worth. And those ideas of economics are built in freedom fewer barriers from government, and a more opportunity for you to pick your, uh, your space.
That's an astonishing statistic about the number of blacks in government. That's that's amazing. the middle class. Yeah, the, every 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 level, whether it's federal, whether it's state, whether it's county, whether it's correctional officer, whether it's teacher, whether it's post office, it is good work, I suppose. But as many of us know, government is disproportionate to what the economy should look like. They should not be taking so much out of economy uh, as government. This is a free society, and government's role is to protect our interests, not to plunder us, not to pursue us, and certainly not to go hire IRS agencies to make sure we're paying something called a fair share so that they can expand themselves and become number one employer. In the country. I want to talk about one other place where you guys are doing a lot of work right now. That Dobbs decision came out of the Supreme Court. It was a big one across the movement, important one for cure. Talk quickly about how you're engaging in this abortion issue. One of our regional summits, uh, we brought this up because our summits on a, uh, on a local level are called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. You can't have liberty and pursuit of happiness if you don't have life. And when African-Americans understand that we bought a lie, five years after King's death, we saw Roe v. Wade as national law that focused on our poorer communities to have them kill their offspring. We have killed off our entrepreneurs. We have killed off our investors. And that community of people that make life sustainable into the future. When you think about 20 million blacks dead since Roe v. Wade, that's more African-Americans that then were alive during the civil rights movement. That's how we're narrating out to get people to refocus on what they bring to the table with their sexual energies. What comes with your sexual energies is marriage and then production of children so that you can have a future. And so that's where we're going post jobs. We're thrilled that that 50-year-old barrier is now put back into our courts for us to have a discussion that we should have. Is it good for you to kill your offspring? And blacks are very open for this discussion, including their church leadership. So that's where we're going. But it does mean a lot of time between, you know, that those that are going to be called mom next year and those that are going to be married the year after. And so we have to just keep the wind in the sail of those that know that what happened in the Dobbs decision is good for the country and for our culture. You know, to close this out here, wondering if you can give us some messaging advice. I mean, it sounds from the way you're talking, there's there is a receptive audience out there, but I feel like conservatives often step on their own feet in trying to talk to black communities. Are there things that conservatives out there can do to to better better engage with black communities, or, or better ways to to articulate the message of liberty and freedom, et cetera, and, and not just articulate it, right? We don't want to just tell people what to do. We want to actually engage them with it and get them excited about it. I think that what conservatives can do is read Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass to find out that black people can self-govern. I think one of the barriers there, again, even with conservatives, is they don't believe that people have the capacity in their existing moment to self-govern. They don't believe it. When we ran billboards uh, during the George Floyd cure, we had billboards up in all, many of our poor communities uh, that just said, you're really tired of poverty, then finish school, take any job, get married, save and invest, give back to your community. Black Lives Matters forced a clear channel to take those billboards down. But the conservative movement didn't rally it either. I just wonder if there is real deep down belief that folks that live in the most distressed areas in the distressed situations can self-govern. If we believe it, then work with us to remove governmental barriers everywhere. We need to dismantle everything government did uh, post-Civil Rights Act. Every part of the war on poverty needs to get back into the hands of individual peoples to govern their own lives. 
Well, that is a powerful charge, a powerful call to action, a good place to end. Star, this has been delightful to talk to you about you. you and the work Cure is doing. Thank you so much. You're so welcome, Peter. Thank you for having us be involved in your work here as a podcast. One thing we do here at Donors Trust is make time available for grantees or potential grantees to update our team on what they're up to. Sometimes we talk to groups we know really well, and other times we end up with calls scheduled from groups that make us say, who is this again? Our call with the Take Charge Foundation over the summer definitely was the latter, but by the end of the call, we were all impressed with the energy and innovation we heard from its founder and president, Kendall Qualls. Take Charge's mission is to inspire and educate black and other minority communities of their full rights and privileges as Americans granted to them by the Constitution. And I am excited to let Kendall share a bit about what he is doing today. So, Kendall, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Peter. So let's start with your personal story. Today, you're married, five kids, living happy suburban life up in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Yet you are the product of a single mom in Harlem. All three of your siblings have spent time in jail. They never finished high school, unlike you, which who st- stayed out of jail, finished high school, went on to college. How did you get from there to here? Yeah, so let, let me just make I qualify that. Yeah, I grew up with um, my single mom, but my mom and dad divorced when I was very young. And I lived uh, my early childhood years, first grade through fifth grade in Harlem in the late 60s, early 70s. It was just a mess. My, my mom, she didn't want to be nothing but a, a mom to raise her kids, and her life changed, and, and we landed in a place that was just rough and terrible at the time. My older sisters and brothers were getting absorbed in the street culture. So my father came and got me and my younger brother to live with him in Oklahoma. Uh, he was a drill sergeant in the Army. So as you come in your teenage years, you don't get into trouble when your father's a drill sergeant. So that's number one. So that saved literally to help the trajectory of my life. But I would always go back and visit my mother and siblings in the summers. And what I saw was a stark contrast to what I, my options were growing up with my father. There was an off-ramp. There was an exit ramp to get a, a better life. And I had part-time jobs. I, I worked through school to pay for college. I was in the Army Reserves um, when I was in college. So, and when I graduated, I graduated as a second lieutenant in the Army, served five years in the Army, uh, served in South Korea. And after five years, I decided to t- take a, a course correction in my, uh, my life, and I joined uh, and went into the private sector. Uh, I was recruited to Johnson & Johnson. I worked there for 11 years in sales and marketing and eventually got promoted to the home office and uh, earned my MBA at University of Michigan. And over the course of this time, my life started having a very different picture from what I grew up in. In fact... When I worked in the home office in New Jersey, and as I, my, my career progressed, I was in my mid-30s. I uh, was group product director for a billion-dollar brand. I had a $95 million budget, and I was an hour away from where I grew up as a kid in Harlem, where we literally got held up on the first day we moved there. And as I tell that story to people, I tell that story, to be, and the reason I, I share that is because the possibilities of this country still exist. There's a formula for success. And unfortunately, in the black community, we've been following a very different formula that hasn't um, pre- you know, prepared our kids for success. And in fact, if what I do here, what you do here publicly, is that that pathway doesn't exist at all. 
So what we at Take Charge form a very different narrative and that that possibility is there and we help people to try to get there. Yeah, let's let's dig a little bit more into Take Charge. So what are you trying to do with the organization? Yeah, first of all, the, the organization, we, we're here to counter the narrative, but also to provide a prescription of how that success can happen. And what we want to do is help take the culture back to where it was before we had help from the government. And that culture of the black community was rooted in faith, a Christian faith, family, a two-parent family. When I was growing up as a kid, nearly 80% of black families were two-parent families. And then the last one is education, getting a better education for our kids. And so we, we provide that prescriptive narrative. Every month we get new volunteers coming to help us speak this message into the communities. And they do that without any compensation because they know that we want, that we used to live differently and they want to be a part of that, that cultural change. So that's the one thing we recruit volunteers. And as we've mapped out our strategic plans moving forward, we plan on doing two things. One, we're going to promote marriage. Yes, it's great to have kids. Let's make sure we have that with kids after you get married. And we want to begin to bring back vocational education to high schools. And it's hard to do that in public schools, so we plan on doing it in the private sector by recruiting middle school kids into the high school where they get a general education, but with an emphasis in vocational education. So we're going to model our program very similar to what they've done in Birmingham with this program called Build Up is that we're, we're going to partner with contractors and home builders and have these kids renovate dilapidated homes in, in, in kind of blighted neighborhoods. So they'll be working on these homes over in the course of 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. By that time, they can get certification for the trades. Um, so they earn basically middle class wages. But one of the neat caveats about this program is that we will partner with banks, local banks in town to actually, uh, so these kids can actually purchase the homes that they've been working on for the previous three to four years. So it's, it's a way of moving kids from poverty to prosperity, you know, populating the trades, but also think about affordable housing. Well, guess what? They're building their family. They're making that happen and they're in the, their ability to start families at a young age and actually be, you know, and be a part of this great private economy that we have. Now, Take Charge is based primarily around Minnesota, or Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Talk to us about that and then kind of the goal is to get moved beyond that, right? Yeah, it is absolutely. It's to move beyond that. But it's interesting. I'm not a native here. But um, Medtronic is the company I was there. I was the global vice president at Medtronic. I was here, uh, ended my career there. And for whatever reason, um, I've landed in this place. You know, God does a lot of amazing things. I'm, I'm not a native, but we love the state. And this is the epicenter where all the rioting, looting, and defund the police started and spread across the country. And think out of the ashes of that, it's going to come a phoenix with a very different message from the black community of one of restoration and returning back to its roots. And it's all built on the basic and the essence of what we know about the American principles and values. They work. And from Minnesota, we're going to move first next to Michigan. One of our, one of our, um, our volunteers and members there is a U of M grad. He's a chemical engineer. And um, uh, that's going to be one of our first states we're going to move out to. And, and from there, even broader beyond that. Now, 
with Take Charge, you are not trying to churn out a bunch of policy. There's plenty of groups doing policy, but my take is really, by and large, you're a messaging organization. You're a you're a human to human organization. Exactly. Not only just human to human. What's so important about this, I believe, and and one of the one of the policies that we're going to I'll talk about in a minute. But one of the important things, I'm a huge fan of Thomas uh, Thomas Sowell. Um, right, we partner closely with the Center for American Experiment. In fact, they're right across the hall from us in our building. But we need to take policy and then how do we implement it? In this situation in the black community, we need to, we need to very similar in the medical community, it's really do one, show one, you know, I think it's just like show one, do one, and, and teach one. That's basically it. We need to be in that situation in our community because there's not, we have 50 years of failure and we're look, we've, you know, policies that have been some of our, to, to our vein, if you, if you will, but I've come out of this. I need to go and show how to get out of this and then now teach so that we can get others to start teaching how to do this. So I'm, in, my, in my career in the military, it's always important, especially as, as officers, how do we take strategy and make sure it gets well executed? And my, I'm at this intersection of strategy and execution or policy and execution. How do we make that happen? Because right now, the culture doesn't know how to make that step. And you've got a great two-minute video that really explains both the problem and, and Take Charge's role in that. We'll share that in the show notes so people can look at it. But you also have a movie that you all produced called I Am a Victor. Tell us about that and what you're hoping to do with the film. Well, it's, it's, it's great. It's, first of all, it's, it's, uh, if you see it graphically, it says, I'm a victim. And it has a red line crossed out of victim. And then the word beneath it is victor. Again, coming out of the Twin Cities, uh, we have a different message. We have, every month we have new volunteers come, and they come to us because there's not a voice in the black community for one that's focused on how do we improve ourselves. There's a formula that works. We need to restore the two-parent family. And guess, guess what? We also need to get back to our religious roots of the Christian faith. You don't hear a mess. There's not a platform for that. The media goes through the loud mouths in every community that are angry, um, they're more like Al Sharpton than anything else. There's not a reasonable messaging in our communities, and our platform has become that. The, um, th- our, our documentary that we put together won two film festival awards. Um, it's a one-hour film. In fact, we're going to do a showing tomorrow night, uh, another one around town, a private showing, where our volunteers will be at the end there to answer questions. And it is really a narrative of, where did our country, culture come from? We didn't used to live like this. What happened? What was that one thing that happened that started with the LBJ war on poverty? And then what has been that historic, that 50 year decline and how we're gonna turn it around right. in, in, in a basically 55 minute narrative. All right, so kind of to wrap up, I wanna to touch on one other thing from your recent past. This is not a political podcast. Donors Trust, of course, doesn't wade into politics, but there are lessons we can learn from the political world, and you stuck your toe in those murky waters of politics. You ran for governor uh, in Minnesota uh, in 2020, I believe. That's right. So are there any lessons that you can take away from that experience about how to better message these ideas of limited government and personal responsibility in a way that actually will resonate with the black community? Yes, absolutely. First of all, um, when, when I go into the black community, I rarely talk about politics. What I do talk about is this cultural cultural things that matter, that resonate. And first of all, you say this one thing, anyone, 
God did not intend for women to raise children alone. And they'll nod their heads up and down, but they're not sure what to do next. Don't promise anything. Just say, look, your kids deserve a, a decent education so they can have the opportunity for success like every, every, every other kid. We should be champions of, of, of school choice. Everyone from the black community all across the, to the rural areas believe that for their children. But, the, but we, have party, we have certain people in certain parties that, that, that impede that. In fact, I run, I'm writing an op-ed, I'm going to get it published here soon. NAACP and Black Lives Matter do not support charter schools or school choice. That's wrong. Okay? That, that's a winning message. And so um, we can win on the cultural issues of family, of education, and we just need to get back to the roots of that, and it works. Kendall Qualls, everything you guys are doing with Take Charge is really cool and, and worth watching as you continue to grow. Thanks for joining us today. Peter, thanks for having me. No conversation on engaging the black community with the ideas of liberty would be complete without talking to Robert Woodson. Bob has a history in the civil rights movement, spent time at the American Enterprise Institute, among other things, all before founding the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise in 1981. Now known as the Woodson Center, the organization is a leading voice to help those in the thick of the situation be involved in developing solutions. So Bob, it is an honor to have you with me today. Um, you know, the Woodson Center mission is a big one. It has a lot of parts. Uh, to quote you, it's empowering community-based leaders to promote solutions that reduce crime and violence, restore families, revitalize underserved communities, and assist in the creation of economic enterprise. So how do you tie all those together? Well, first of all, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, the Woodson Center is committed to uh, demonstrating that the problems of poverty and violence that uh, is wreaking havoc in low-income communities, that solutions exist. And so part of what we do is try to demonstrate, we take a retail approach to it. We go into one troubled community and identify a set of problems, but recognizing that there are healthy elements within that community already working on the problem. And what I do is, and we do, is come in and find those healing agents build on what they do, like a venture capitalist without capital. <laughs> we, we bring resources, but we also bring knowledge about how to take what's working in microcosm and, and expand it so that it uh, heals more people. Well, you, it's almost like you assume, to go with the venture capital analogy, you assume the capital's already there, that the humans, the people, in the neighborhood actually have the solutions, have the gumption, maybe don't have all the tools, or maybe haven't connected all the dots, that's where you all can come in, but the, the talent is there, is that fair? It really is, and it's, and, it's, and it's in opposition to what is traditionally done by both the left and the right. We assume that these troubled communities require the parachuting in of solutions from the outside, usually professionally designed uh, and they come in with the expectation that if, if they bring a charter school or if they bring some other intervention, that the community then will respond. And that's why our pro policies towards reducing poverty have failed over the last 50 years, because the approach has in often suffocated uh, healing agents in those communities uh, in the name of helping them. Now. One of the interesting principles of the Woodson Center is a belief that social change follows from the same principles of 
a market-based economy, a free enterprise. So, so tell us about what that means. How do you apply that market-based idea to, to change? Well, first of all, only 3% of the people in the market economy are entrepreneurs, but they generate 70% of the jobs. And entrepreneurs, according to David Birch, tend to be C students, not A students. A students come back to universities and teach C students in Dow. Because very smart people have to have all the answers before they act. By the time they act, the opportunity is gone. Um, but, and so both people left and right have a healthy dose of elitism when it comes to looking for problem solvers when it comes to poverty. We assume only well-educated people can do that. But we, adopting market principles, we go in and look for the untutored Josephs that have the, the moral authority and the trust of people in those communities and the ingenuity to come up with creative ways to promote redemption from within the community, uh, maybe starting with a small group of individuals who are able to expand their influence to uh, others in that community, and together they represent a source of restoration and, and re reclamation in that community. Now you have a number of programs under the umbrella of the Woodson Center. We could probably do a three-hour podcast trying to unpack them all, but let's go through a couple of them and dig into them. I want to start with the Voices of Black Mothers United, which, uh, as I understand it, speaks to the families shattered by violence, uh, which happens all too often in, in some of these urban communities, maybe even more so recently. What's the vision for that program? What are you trying to do there? Well, first of all, the leading cause of death of young black men and women is violence and violence. And yet people on both the left and the right, people on the left, Black Lives Matter claim, well, it's, it's race, institutional racism and it's the police are agents of, uh, of oppression and therefore, therefore defund the police. Um, what we do is we uh, go to the people who are suffering the problem, the mothers who lost children, and let them speak for themselves. 80% of the black community poll does not support defunding the police, but you never know that listening to the so-called uh, uh, representatives. And so we, those mothers, we have brought the, them together by the thousands so they can speak for themselves. And they are uh, taking steps to unite with the police, partner with them, uh, providing help and support for mothers who have lost children because a large percent, 35 percent, five to six years after the loss of a child ends up committing suicide or die from what they call broken heart syndrome. Wow. And so uh, a lot of our, so Sil Sylvia Bennett Stone, who leads that effort, has uh, worked with uh, five homicide departments around the country uh, by getting some of the moms actually employed by the homicide divisions. And so they build trust between the families of deceased kids and, and the police. And as a consequence, uh, many more of those cases in those cities have been closed because people report uh, the, the, the killers. And so there are concrete things that the moms are doing, not only to provide aid and comfort to one another, but to work with law enforcement to improve and prevent violence in those communities. Yeah, are you seeing market improvements in the communities where you've really taken this program in strong? Absolutely. We have one that was profiled on, on, uh, on PBS 25 years ago in the area of Washington called Benning Terrace. It was 50, 55 murders in a five-square-block area in two years. The police were afraid to go in there. 
And I have been working with a group called the Alliance of Concerned Men. These are, are five men who spent time in prison, but Christ touched their lives and they became redeemed. And I trained them and they went up in that community and brought those just 16 young men who were the warring factions to my office. We negotiated a peace treaty uh, and then we directed them, to, they went back into the communities to repair uh, the, the buildings and working for the housing authority. And as a result of our intervention in there, uh, we went from 55 murders in a five square block area in two years down to zero gang murders for 12 years. Wow. So another program that some listeners may have heard about, uh, certainly it's in the news a lot more, uh, is your 1776 Unites program, which pushes back against the the uh, newly vogue narrative around the 1619 Project. How are you using that program to push back on this idea of America being a fundamentally racist nation? Well, I think the left is using uh, a, a group of black leftists and progressives to denigrate the country, say that our birth, rate, our birth, uh, birth is 1619 and that America should be defined by slavery and it's incurably racist and all white people are villains and all black people are victims. Uh, and so this poisonous narrative is, it has now insinuated itself into corporate American schools. So we've said, well, since the messenger is black and they're using the, the rich tradition of the black community we brought together 23 scholars uh, on the other side to promote an alternative narrative, not a debate, a narrative, which just provides evidence that America's birth is 1776. And in our book, Red, White, and Black, uh, Rescuing America from Revisionist History and Race Hustlers, we document the fact that when whites were at their worst historically, blacks were at their best. And our essays, for instance, uh, chronicle the fact that looking at the birth, uh, the records of six major plantations after slavery, 75% of black families, slave families, had a man and a woman raising children. And there are other, when we were denied access to hotels, we built our own in major cities. We had our own black Wall Streets. So what we did in these, uh, in our books, is develop curriculum that gave an accurate portrayal of, uh, of blacks in response to oppression. Black America has never been defined by slavery or Jim Crow, but we have been defined by our opposition to it through self-determination and, and, and compliance with the virtues and values of our founders. And so the, the, we had 50,000 downloads on our curriculum in one year, 50,000. Wow. Yeah, it, you know, from, from that work, from the, the work you're doing engaging in the community, it just seems that there are so many opportunities for those who believe in liberty and free markets and small government to engage in the black community, in urban communities, and that, that I think go missed. There's missed opportunities there. Are you optimistic that we can have a broader conversation there across races and, and really towards a more colorblind society? I am, but I say to my friends on the conservative side, we must do more than write papers and go on Fox and complain about what the left is doing. We must join in common community with low-income leaders 
because they are the ones that are demonstrating through their actions the importance of the values of our founders. As I said, people want to see a sermon. They don't want to hear any more sermons. And I think people like Dick Reardon, who became the first Republican governor, I mean, mayor of Washington, uh, of Los Angeles, back in 1990. What Dick Reardon, a white conservative businessman, two years before he declared for office, he went into East LA, worked with low-income Hispanic leaders to ask what they needed to address their problems. And he built, along with some friends, the Reardon Center, a, a first-class facility so that they would have a place to, to reside. And, and only after he planted charitably and he harvested politically. But he, you don't harvest and plant in the same year. And when he ran for office, he was the first Republican in 35 years to win. And he got reelected with 60% of the demographics there. Because not only did he d deliver on his promise but he also continued his relationships with people. You would think that other conservative politicians would have Dick Reardon uh, at front and center at all their count. They don't. He's been ignored. You don't hear his name. And so one has to question the sincerity of people. And so I, so my challenge is to everyone. That's why my, my politics is radical pragmatism. Most Americans want to support policies that work, regardless of the, it, it, the, the ideological package they come in. Well, you certainly live the sermon every day, and uh, we are thankful for you, thankful for the work that the Woodson Center is doing. Robert Woodson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. As I was putting this episode together, I had a really terrific conversation with Devin Westhill. He runs the Center for Equal Opportunity, which pursues the idea of a colorblind society. And telling him about what we were going to be covering here, he challenged me on the idea of what I even mean when I say, quote, the black community. His point, and it's a fair one, was to remember that blacks in America, just like whites or Hispanics or, or any racial group, are not monolithic. Indeed, we don't need the whole black community to join hands with us in the fight for limited government any more than we would try to win over the whole of the white community. Rather, those of us passionate about conservative principles and libertarian ideals should make it clear we are fighting for principles and want to make common cause with anyone who shares those. We'll leave it to those on the other side to try and make a race-based case for affiliation. We know that ideas can win the day, and that we can invite individuals to join communities based on the strength of those ideas. Isn't that the message we heard from today's guests? When Star Parker reminded us that anyone and everyone has the capacity for self-governance, and that spreading that knowledge is a path towards overcoming government dependency and overreach? From Kendall Qualls, we heard how he connected with voters, and now with communities, about the ideas of faith and family and a relentless pursuit of a better future. And he found receptive audiences. But perhaps most important is the message about showing up from Bob Woodson. Expanding the base of those committed to conservative ideas doesn't come from more white papers, but by being in common community, by letting people, as he said, see the sermon instead of just preaching. So how can we be that sermon? It starts by understanding why we think 
smaller government is better, and why personal responsibility isn't a bad thing. We have to articulate the strength and power of the free enterprise system and the importance of personal freedoms. Your philanthropy is an important part of living that sermon as well, putting your money where your passions are. I'll have links to the websites for Cure, Take Charge Foundation, and the Woodson Center, all in our show notes, just like we always do. And if the work of one of them speaks to you, well, I hope you'll consider a gift. I will close with something that Ian Rowe told me when I bumped into him the other day. We talked about Ian back in episode 21. He is the epitome of the happy warrior, and he reminded me that in all things, people should have courage. So let's put our chin up with the confidence of the power of our ideas. Have courage. Let's talk more soon. Thank you.